Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Are you feeling uh, refreshed after a day of uh, whatever? (laughs) Of uh, softball, football, or real football? Uh, seeing uh, England almost come a cropper and poor Robert Green will forever live in World Cup ignominy after today. He becomes the new goat replacing Bill Buckner for a postmodern age. So that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. What you might not know actually is Rob Green is, is a rock solid committed Christian. So that was your brother that you were uh, gloating over his misfortune. Just thought I'd share that guilt-inducing tidbit with you this evening. Uh, I've got a message I'd like to share with you, but before I do that, what I'd like to do, if, if you're game for it, is uh, maybe have some Q&A, got questions based on what I shared last night in terms of my experiences, questions you've had, roadblocks you've bumped into, things that you disagree with, or things you'd like to press me for clarity or a more helpful application on. So we'll do that for a few minutes uh, and then we'll transition into into a message from from God's Word. So if you've got a question, you just want to wave at me. I've got a cordless microphone and then you can come and voice your question so that everybody can hear. And we'll kind of do it that way. So I know I bumped into some of you earlier and you had questions and uh, actually someone said they had millions of questions. So we don't have time for millions of questions, but we have time for a few uh, questions on the art and enterprise of evangelism. So who's going to join the polar bear club and break the ice first? Wow, shy bunch. Oh, yes. Love it. Okay, we'll go here first, and then I'll go to uh, my Scottish brother in a little bit. I was wondering if you can share what your thoughts are on um, reconciling the sovereignty of God and the attitude towards evangelism. Okay. Wow. Thanks for sharing. Uh, let's go to another question, shall we? <laughs> no, that, that's an important theological question. I'm a soft Calvinist, which just means I need to lose weight. Uh, that's, that's what that means. But really, God is, God is sovereign. God is the primary evangelist. And we've just got to kind of hold uh, to truth's intention. There's an element of paradox here. But at the very heart of our faith is paradox. That Jesus is and was fully human and fully God at the same time without contradiction. So there's a paradox that's the very heart of our faith, that Jesus of Nazareth was fully God as if he was not human and fully human as if he was not God at the same time. And so uh, Christian faith is mystery. Uh, But how do I play that in the role of an evangelist? Well, the results are God's problem. So that's liberating. If God is sovereign, you know, there is this old scalp hunting mentality that pops its head up in old school evangelicalism. I think, for example, Billy Sunday used to guarantee so many converts per dollar. 
Right, so he had this thing down to a piece of machinery where they would build this tabernacle. He would take it into a city. Well, what is that? It's almost Pelagianism. It almost makes evangelism a business or a human enterprise. So we're called to be faithful and leave the results in God's hands. So that's an area where it's actually liberating to say God is sovereign, God's the evangelist, and there's an element of mystery. I mean, Jesus says to Nicodemus, uh, the spirit moves where he wills just like the wind moves where it will. So there's an unpredictable dynamic. But I I think uh, that gives us security and confidence. Uh, If you want to dig deeper than my soundbite type answer, if you read J.I. Packer's old book that's still in circulation, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. On the one hand, we're all commissioned to be part of this gospel enterprise. On the other hand, uh, the issue of regeneration, conversion, Faith being awakened in unregenerate people, that's all God's business. Uh, is that okay? Do you, want to, do you want to press for anything else? Or Oh, okay. Oh, he's going to follow me around. Do you, you get another thought or comment? Are you good? You're good. Awesome. Who else had a question here? I saw like two hands go up simultaneously. Was it Mia? Maya? I loved you in Slumdog Millionaire. I thought I thought you were, I thought you were awesome. What's your question, Maya? Um, I was just wondering if you could kind of share stories that didn't work out and kind of what you did with that. And then also a second question is, um, when you talked about opening the pub, you had said you know your brother had a different opinion on it. So do you lose a certain part of your church when you really kind of go outside the box? Great questions. Uh, when it didn't work out. Uh, I'm trying to think, because clearly it doesn't work out. You know, there's people who... I'll tell you one example, which maybe points to uh, some teachable moments for us. I was involved in 1983 in a townwide outreach, which we used to call crusades, but you don't get too many Muslims showing up if you have a crusade. So... So we call them festivals or, or citywide outreaches, and a number of churches cooperated. And for reasons I don't understand, Tommy Wilson got out of jail on the Monday and ended up being an usher at the event on the Tuesday. So there's this guy, and he hears the gospel, and it's very obvious he's spiritually disturbed. Use the good old classic term. He was under conviction of sin. I mean, you could just see he was sweltering under spiritual pressure. As there was just a simple message about the cross, a couple of nights later, he came to faith in Christ, and he was gloriously converted. So much so, uh, whether it was smart or not, the final night we had this end of outreach celebration, and I had him share his testimony. So he got up talked about the difference that Jesus made in his life, dropped some profanity on the way, which was fun. You know, I'm sitting on the stage and, and, there's, uh, and uh, he shares his story. The cop who arrested him was in the crowd. And the cop said, you know what? Something real has happened to Tommy Wilson. And Tommy loved Jesus with a passion. And he, he plugged into a church and he wanted to start a job club. Because our area in the west of Scotland had been a world leader in shipbuilding, but 
during the transition from heavy engineering to information technology, it just imploded. And parts of the community had meteoric unemployment. So I think regional unemployment was like 18%. Parts of the, the town had like 85% unemployment. And some men were practically unemployable. You know, if you were a riveter in the shipyards, how could you transfer those skills into another career with great difficulty? So he thought, let's do something practical to demonstrate the love of God. For reasons I don't know, one of the old guards at that church objected strongly to the very idea of that and just hammered Tommy. And I have no idea where Tommy is. So, so he's, he's lost to the church at this point in time. No clue. And we live thousands of miles. So there's lots of stories where you go, what was going on? And we could look at it through a theological grid and go, well, maybe he was never saved in the first place if you land on the Calvinist end of the spectrum. Maybe you rationalize it from the parable of the soils where Jesus says that some seed will land in shallow soil and sprout up quickly. And so there's a shallow soil response that looks transformative at the get-go, but maybe really isn't. But the larger issue is, you know, there is someone else who got, who got beat up by the church, who discovered Jesus and the grace of God and the shame and guilt of his violent past erased. And then um, that's where he's at. So your, your next question, Maya, I mean, there's lots of stories. I'm just not, my, my memory banks aren't popping with stories. Not, not because uh, bad stories don't happen. I could tell you another story. Uh, baptismal service, a uh, bunch of people share their testimony, and uh, I preach the gospel, call for a response. And a number of people come to faith that particular morning. It was exciting. It was awesome. We had an alpha course just like two days later, which was great spiritual timing and, and it could refer people. One of the people uh, who came forward, his grandfather had been a preacher, his dad had been a pastor, but had seen a lot of bad stuff in the church and actually had been molested as a kid. So he had a lot of baggage. And when I met him, his guard was up. He was kind of a church under duress and just very fierce. And he comes forward, bawling his eyes out, commits his life to Christ, and he's gloriously saved. And uh, the church went through a pretty stormy conflict. And who invariably falls through the cracks? Uh, not the old guard, but it's the babies. It's the babies that get taken out. You know, so... There's, there's lots of sad stories like that, and it just means like, hey, we've got to be authentic. Uh, we've got to honor the leadership in the church, and we've got to preserve unity and, and honor uh, peace and, and live out the gospel of reconciliation. The pub question. Right, I'm fully aware that my comments, uh, you know, will from time to time generate email, for example, you know, so at church, if I'm talking about Guinness or if I quote Benjamin Franklin, beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. You know, people will laugh or I'll tell a joke during a sermon about a guy from uh, 
Budweiser, a guy from Coors and an executive from Guinness were at a beer executives conference and uh, they went out at a break and the, the uh, Budweiser guy orders a beer uh, orders a Budweiser uh, the Coors guy orders a Coors Light and the Guinness guy orders a cup of coffee and so these guys raise their eyebrows and the Coors guy says, what's the deal? You ordered a cup of coffee. And the Budweiser executive says, yeah, what's the deal? Why didn't you order a beer? He said, well, you guys weren't drinking beer, so I decided I wouldn't drink beer. <laughs> so uh, that, that'll get a laugh, right? Uh, most places. Uh, uh, but it, it may generate email traffic. So I'm, I'm aware of that. I've got a friend, Mike Hale, who owns Hale's Ales, uh, Red Menace, and the wee heavy, and he owns Hales Ales in a brew pub in Seattle. And when I had this daft idea to open a pub, I went and sat down with Mike, and he just burst my bubble. You know, he stole my happy Gilmore happy place, because it involves the significant micromanagement of detail. But Mike has been a born-again brewmeister for three decades. And uh, you can imagine, 30, 25 years ago, the kind of hassle he would get, and I said, Mike, how do you deal with that? How do you make sense of the hostility you get from the church for your chosen profession? He says, I look at it two ways. If God tells me to quit, I'll do it because I want to love and honor him. I said, but how do you deal with the hassle you get? He says, I see it as a manifestation of a religious spirit. So every once in a while, I'm the guy that will come along and poke you in the eye. I will be a provocateur and an irritant just because I hate legalism. The older I get, just the more feisty I get towards legalism. I want to be merciful and compassionate and tender. We've got people in our church that struggle with addictions. We've got people that are coming out of criminal and addictive backgrounds at one of our campuses in particular. So I've got to exercise great sensitivity. But usually the people that quote the weaker brother passage are the religious bullies. They're not the weaker brother. Like, hey, you've been safe for how long and you're still the weaker brother? Shut up. You know, so... So I'm, I'm aware of that, right? And so I do it from time to time intentionally. And I'm just into kind of being real. Like, hey, let's keep it real. So I've got a friend who uh, had been out in the wilderness for about eight or nine years and plugged into our church. And he said to me, you do that stuff on purpose, don't you? You know, like when you say these things about it. I said, yeah. He said, why? I said, I want to affirm grace. So behind the idea isn't just me being irritant and abrasive, right? But yeah, some people don't get it. Like I grew up in a church tradition where I would have questioned, like if I saw Bill Hogg, I would have thought, that guy can't be saved. You know, because I had this spiritual category that excluded Presbyterians and that excluded people that drank beer. Like, how could you? How could you be saved if you're drinking beer? Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived therein is not wise. My dad used to drum the King James Version of the Bible into my head. Uh, but I, I think there's, there's freedom. We shouldn't abuse our freedom. We shouldn't take our freedom as license. And I think there's a danger in the contemporary church that we've pendulum swung away from restrictive straitjacket legalism to licentious living. God's call to holiness is from generation to generation. But holiness is really nothing to do with whether you drink beer or not, unless you drink to excess. You know, 
We let people who are crass materialists, who conduct dodgy business deals off the hook, and then we pick on the poor sucker who happens to have a Samuel Adams at a barbecue. So, enough said about that. Is that, is that answer enough? Okay, thanks, Maya. My wannabe Scottish friend. Oh, or are you really Scottish? Ethnically, I'm Scottish. Um, you mentioned the, the, the problem with uh, trying to convince um, the, unchur- the unsaved the, that God is good, despite the fact that the world is full of crap. So um, you, you said we, ha- we do have to address that, but then I was wondering if you could, like how, how you deal with that in an evangelistic sense. Uh, that's a really great question. Uh, Tim Keller's got a book out. What's that book called, Dave? Dave will know. He's a librarian. The Reason for God? Yeah, thanks, Dave. Uh, the Reason for God. So he deals with that in there, so read that. There you go. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> what, what I tend to do is I affirm that there's a mystery here. Life isn't fair. I mean, seriously. You look at twisted, wicked, abusive people who are wealthy, successful, and everything seems to go their way. And Scripture recognizes that. I mean, there's a question directed at God, why do the wicked prosper? So there's that side to it where faithful, honorable people experience pain and grief. So I think you've got to affirm the reality of the question. I think part of the discernment process, is this a red herring? Or a real hindrance, the RH factor. Is someone dropping a smoke screen in front of you to say, okay, back off, deal with this philosophical Rubik's Cube? Or is it an issue of personal pain? You know, and sometimes someone won't disclose that, or they may open up about that. Or they may frame the question in personal terms, and the issue is one of personal pain and disappointment with God. But the gospel tells us that God... Is no spectator in the arena of human suffering. That God became fully human. So, my response in an evangelistic setting to the question, not to trivialize the fact that this is a tough one. And recently I've been in a Facebook dialogue that, with a, a friend about where did evil come from? You know, you know, which can just be a blind alley. It can be a cul-de-sac. But to focus on the fact that Jesus is Yahweh come in the flesh. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He walked where we walk. It says in Hebrews 4.15 that he was tempted and tried and tested in every way that we are yet without sin. And and he experienced uh, not only enormous physical pain, but spiritual cosmic alienation from his father when he died on the cross. So I, I would point to Jesus, the crucified God, and then also talk about why is there evil in the world? Why is there injustice? So God gets blamed sometimes for, for human stuff, like an earthquake. Maybe 10,000 people die in an earthquake, and what we discover is the buildings weren't up to code. The buildings weren't earthquake safe. So what do you do? Do you tag God with the earthquake or the builders who didn't build safe houses? Uh, The reality is there's evil in the world. G.K. Chesterton said, the only empirically verifiable Christian doctrine is original sin. So it can be a conversation about human nature and about sin. And from time to time, the culture voices this question like, 
you may or may not remember, I think it was 18 years ago, little Jamie Bulger was shopping with his mother in a mall near Liverpool, England. And the little guy, as you know, if you've had a three-year-old, is as squirrely as all get out, ants in his pants, and he, and he disappears from her close supervision. And uh, two ten-year-olds take him away and bludgeon him with rocks and throw his, his little body onto a railroad track and watch as a train comes over this little three-year-old. Absolutely horrifying. And so the British press began to grapple with this. How is this possible? And so some of these newspapers that aren't Christianity today are exploring the issue of evil. How is this possible that two ten-year-olds could do something so reprehensible? So we can't minimize the tension or trivialize someone's pain, but it does point to a larger issue that the created order is not in sync with God's original design. And I, and I think it's to, helpful to point that out and then that God stepped into the cauldron of human suffering. Is, is that okay for just now? Okay, cool. Anybody else got a question? Here we go. Do you want to... Thanks. Yeah, I'm tired. I don't want to walk. No, no. Thank, thanks very much, bro. Thanks for serving. Thank you. Uh, can you um, explain the how to uh, minister or share the gospel to um, somebody who's already religious, whether that be just like them having a, uh, you know, believing in Christ, you know, but not actually trusting in Him or like them being of a different faith and knowing of a version of Christ but not, you know, the real, true Christ. Right. So that's really two questions. One is talking about the real, true Christ. So if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, they believe Jesus is an archangel. You talk to a Mormon, they have an aberrant Christology. They believe God had two sons, Lucifer and, and Jesus. So... I mean, you would go, hopefully, in a hospitable spirit, you would turn to the scriptures and point to the uniqueness, supremacy, and final authority of Jesus. The challenge is, in in my mind, maybe the hardest people to reach are gospel-hardened people or religious people. Religious people who trust in their own self-righteousness, think their presence in the assembly of God's people is doing God a favor. And there's a reminder to us in the teaching of Jesus in the parable of the wheat and the tares, side by side, as part of the gathered assembly of God's people, are genuine, authentic children of God who have been regenerated by the Spirit and those who have not experienced new life in Christ. And, and I think we were talking about this at the dinner table. I, I can't remember if we'd been part of this conversation, but you get up and... and, and uh, went and got like five desserts or something like that So at that point. But we're talking about, like, if you go to the south of the United States, there's still cultural Christianity in play there. And the words of Soren Kierkegaard come to mind. If everyone is a Christian, no one is a Christian. 
So, you know, there's a challenge here uh, with nominalism still in the West. So, I would talk to people about what the basis of their confidence of being accepted fully and finally before God is. And then you can sniff out if it's self, uh, self-righteousness or religiosity and uh, talk to them, ask them what change Jesus has made in their life, ask them to describe their relationship. Do they know? And there's much more to the gospel of the kingdom than eternal life, but do they know that they have eternal life? Do they know that their sins are forgiven? Do they know that they're fully and finally accepted? When I worked in IBM yonks ago, Uh, One of the guys in resource planning was an atheist called Alistair Watson who got a five-year assignment to Boca Raton, Florida. Wow, isn't that awesome? And while he was in the Sunshine State, he met Jesus and came back a very vocal Christ follower. And Tony was in resource planning. And Tony was always disturbed by Alistair's testimony and Alistair's witnessing. And Tony sidled up to me. Uh, And Tony was religious, so that's why he would say this. He would say to me, Alistair is guilty of the sin of presumption. I said, really, Tony, can you explain that? He said, yeah, nobody knows if they have eternal life. Nobody knows if God has accepted them. But we know from Scripture that 1 John 5 tells us that you may know. Little children have written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. He that has the Son has life. He that does not have the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God remains upon him or her. And Tony's issue was he's trusting in his religiosity. My high school buddy was Yasser Gahin. So you imagine the theologically sophisticated conversations a 16-year-old Muslim and a 16-year-old fundamentalist have. But I said to Yasser, Yasser, how do you know if Allah will accept you? Like, when you die, how's that thing going to play out when you die? And he says, Allah will take all my good deeds and put them in one scale, and my bad deeds and put them in another scale. Now hit the pause button and we'll come back to that. That's because Muslims understand sins, but don't understand sin. Uh, Martin Luther said the proper devilishness of sin is this. It changes the first words of the Ten Commandments to I am my Lord and my God. So there's not a sense of rebellion or treason or awareness. It's deeds, good deeds, bad deeds. I said, so how's that going to work out? How do you think that'll go? He's well, he says, I hope it'll go okay. Now, you have that conversation in a church. People won't frame the response to you in Islamic terms, but it's the same idea. You know, that, hey, if I'm good enough, God will accept me. Guess what? Nobody's good enough. You can't measure up. God's standard is perfection, and you've blown it. You've declared high treason against God. So, uh, I used to... uh, There's a book by Paris Reedhead called Getting Evangelicals Saved. And it addresses, even within an orthodox... Bible affirming, gospel affirming context, people can miss the boat. And that just reminds those of us who are entrusted with the teaching and preaching of God's word that every set in every context, there's those who are unsure and they need to be given uh, a reminder. They need assurance of salvation. They are God's children, but they're shaky. There are those who are outside the kingdom 
and some of them need beckoned, and some of them need a kick in the pants. So, you know, I, I think the thing is to be, try and have a conversation rather than being pugnacious with the religious person. But, you know, ask them, well, why did Jesus come to die if it's, if it's a moral improvement project, if it's a self-improvement project? So that's my kind of stream of consciousness. Thanks for your question. Anybody else got a question? Johnny. Okay, we'll get you on the microphone, Johnny. Um, I heard you said too loud. I heard it's like uh, when I was in Baltimore, it's like uh, Jewish people. Jewish people says God is a is a they believe, but they don't believe uh, Jesus. Why is that? That's a great question, Johnny. Because uh, they say it's, uh, he's a human. Right. Well, I could tell a personal story to illustrate part of the challenge there. When I worked in IBM, I had a friend who was about the age of my dad, and we would have lunch every once in a while. His name was Dave. And Dave told me that if he ever invited me over to his house, he would need to wash my plates separately from his plates because I am a Gentile and he is a Jew. And he was explaining some of the customs that would be observed in his home. But I said in the course of the conversation, well, Dave, what about Messiah? What's your thoughts on who Messiah is? Has Messiah come? Is Messiah going to come? He's like, who cares? You know, not too bothered. You know, maybe he won't be coming. You know, it didn't affirm Jesus as Messiah. So for a lot of Jewish people, it's a point of cultural identity rather than a living faith. And, uh, you know, Jesus isn't part of it. You know, you look at Isaiah 53, which might be the most Christ-centered passage in the Old Testament, but uh, they look at it through a different grid. So... That's a big question. That's an unsatisfying answer, really. But I'd like to pray. And uh, now I'll speak. And uh, you can ask questions while I'm speaking, but I'll just ignore you. Okay, how about that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and mercy and faithfulness extended to us fully through Jesus. We thank you for your Son, And we thank you for the privilege of following him and the privilege of declaring his name. And we pray that tonight uh, you would stir our hearts by the power of your spirit. You would speak into our lives. You'd leave a deposit in our hearts. We thank you that you are the God who speaks. We thank you that Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And we thank you that Jesus said, my words are spirit and life. So we pray that amongst the human words spoken over these next few moments, we would hear the life-giving voice of Jesus and have the courage to obey his call. Amen. When I was a boy growing up in the west of Scotland, from time to time we would go to Glasgow. For a little while I lived in Port Glasgow, which was the port of Glasgow. And historically, ships would come into the port of Glasgow, drop off their loads, and then their loads would be transported up the coast to Glasgow. But we didn't go on horse and buggy. We went on the train 
had a steam engine back when I was a boy in short trousers. And I was always excited about going on the train. Because it meant a big day out in the big city. But more than that, I was always excited with the drama that unfolded as the train was getting ready to leave the station. Because each train had a conductor. As you know, if you've watched Thomas the Tank Engine with your small ones. And uh, the conductor didn't always speak like Ringo Starr. But he would be out there making sure everything was in order. And then at one point he would blow his whistle. And then he would say two magic words that I waited with eager five-year-old, six-year-old anticipation for. The conductor would have climbed back into the conductor's carriage. By this time he would be leaning out the window and he would shout, All aboard! And then I knew the fun was just about to begin because invariably there were some stragglers who hadn't got to the station with enough margin. And that was a signal for them to attempt to get on the train while it was moving. And to me, this was like the most entertaining prospect of all. As you'd see people scurrying along, and they would really be dependent on the hospitality of other passengers. Would they open the door and let them run along parallel and then leap inside? Or would they just wave at them (laughs) defiantly? But those words meant a drama unfolded all aboard. And as we look at the Gospels, as we reflect on the ministry and mission and teaching of Jesus, Jesus says two words that are supposed to spark a redemptive drama. And those two words are, all aboard, that all of us are to participate in God's mission in the world. That the way God has set it up, with perfect heavenly simplicity, and we've made it complicated, is that the whole church, the whole people of God, take the whole gospel to the world. And I want to look at a passage of scripture tonight where we hear two words being voiced to us, two words being shouted at us from the pages of scripture. And it's Jesus' invitation, is Jesus' summons that each and every one of us, each and every one of you, where God has placed you, will participate in his mission in the world. So let's turn to Luke chapter 10. And there we find God's redemptive strategy played out in the lives of 72 people. Luke 10 verse 1 says, After this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest field. Go. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you, heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town 
that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet, be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable, be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, before we climb into this passage and look at ways in which we can implement the mission of Jesus in our lives and you together as Harvest Community Church can implement the mission of Jesus, we've got to make sense of who the 72 were. So we know sometimes in the Bible, numbers have spiritual significance. Like... Uh, Number seven might speak of fullness, completion, perfection. 666, not a good number to have tattooed on your forehead. The Bible tells us in John's Gospel that a bunch of Jesus followers went on a fishing expedition and caught 153 fish. What does that mean? It means they caught 153 fish. So, every time you see a number in the Bible, it really doesn't necessarily mean something wow and mysterious and supernatural and prophetic. But here, the number 72 is significant. Jesus does something very intentional when he picks 72 faceless, ordinary, anonymous followers to advance his cause, his kingdom and participate in his mission. Genesis 10, there's a table of nations. And in the Jewish thinking of Jesus' day, based on that list, there was an understanding that there were 70 or 72 nations on the planet. So there's a statement here that Jesus wants to start a movement that will participate in God's redemptive purposes to the nations. So it speaks, it's a local short-term missions experience, but it speaks to a global redemptive agenda because God has a passion for the nations. And for some of you, God will disrupt your current zip code because he's got a passion for the nations Jesus says go and make disciples of all people groups and part of God's plan is to move his chess pieces around the board so he moves a Scotsman from Scotland to the United States and then because he doesn't like me anymore he moves me to Canada 
and says, deal with that wee man. Or my friends who are Canadians are relocated by God to the United Kingdom. And when they're in the United Kingdom, the wife has a profound immobilizing spiritual experience at a conference where the Spirit of God comes upon her in power. And God's presence is so palpable and thick, she's just bawling and she can't move. Because she was the missionary kid of Canadian missionaries to Japan. And God reawakened a love and passion and call to Japan. She's bicultural, bilingual, and they're now in Japan. They've become permanent residents. And I don't think they'll be coming back. Never say never in God's economy. And God's purpose when he calls Abram and makes Abraham was that Abram would be the father of many and that God would bless the nations through Abraham. And that's still on God's heart, God's agenda. When we look at the glorious future of the kingdom, we find that men and women from every tongue, every tribe, every people group, every skin pigmentation, every ethnic category are gathered around the throne worshipping the Lamb. And God has a passion for the nations. God's agenda is bigger than your backyard, bigger than your church, bigger than your neighborhood, bigger than your community, bigger than your county, bigger than your state, bigger than your nation, because God has a heart for the whole world. And so somehow Jesus is making a prophetic statement here that he wants to raise up a people who will be an army of little Christs and be agents of God's kingdom to the nations. But what else is going on here? The 72 speaks to God's commitment to multiplication and reproduction. There's a fascinating, weird episode in the life of Moses in the book of Numbers where God takes the spirit that he placed on Moses, the spirit of prophecy, and God takes that spirit and imparts the spirit of prophecy to the elders. 70 elders who were in the camp, in the assembly, and two slacker elders who are still in their tents maybe laying in their sleeping bags. They were Eldad and Medad. We don't know who the other 70 were. But the spirit of prophecy comes upon them, and they all do what Moses did. God reproduces the ministry of the leader through the 72. What's Jesus doing? He's reproducing the ministry of the leader, Jesus, the leader, through the 72, because it's his desire for his ministry to be multiplied and extended through ordinary people. So when we think of the 72, it reminds us that the expansion of the kingdom is not simply the role of the visible leaders in the faith community. Luke chapter 9, Jesus commissions the 12 apostles to preach the gospel of the kingdom, heal the sick and drive out demons. Now, if we didn't have this narrative in Luke 10, we'd go, well, I guess that's apostolic ministry for the big dogs. But here we find the anonymous ones. Luke didn't inflict a telephone directory of 72 names because the only name that counts is the name of Jesus. And God wants all his people, the whole church, to take the whole gospel to the whole world. So, 
if we hear the voice of Jesus over this weekend, all aboard, it could mean different things. It could mean God says, okay, that career plan that you so carefully constructed, devoid of the inspiration of my spirit, put it in the shredder. Get on board my program. It could mean moving somewhere else, learning another language. It could be heading back to when she came from to be a redemptive agent. But whether the mission field is Chicago, Canada, Japan, there are foundations in place the way God wants the mission to be executed, his kingdom to expand. And the first one is plug into prayer. Three ways to get on board Jesus' mission. And the first one is plug into prayer. Jesus launches a movement from the place of prayer. He says to them, there's a day of opportunity and a day of challenge. There's an incredible spiritual opportunity. The harvest is plentiful, but we face a personnel crisis. The workers are few. And what's Jesus' response? To pray. To call them to pray. He says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest field. So they're praying. And then Jesus says to them, okay, boys and girls, you can stop praying now. Why, boss? Father has heard and answered your prayer. Really? What did he say? And Jesus says, I got some good news and some bad news for you. You say, what's the good news, boss? Father has heard and answered your prayer. What's the bad news? Go. I'm sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. They're propelled into mission and service from the place of prayer. Prayer is absolutely foundational. We're reminded here that this is not a human activity. Because Jesus says, I'm sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. What does a wolf think when it sees a lamb? It, two words pop into a wolf's head. Mint sauce when it sees a lamb. So he's saying you're going to a place of vulnerability. You're going to a place of danger. Because I'm sending you into a combat zone. There was a wealthy Texan oil billionaire who was having a big barbecue at his house to show off his decadence to everybody. And when everybody was enjoying themselves poolside, he said, I want to offer the first man who will swim a length of my shark-infested pool, my beautiful daughter Betty Lou's hand in marriage. 25% of my oil company shares and $10 million cash. So no sooner had he uttered the words than a guy begins to plow through the water with a great white in hot pursuit. <coughs> and he manages to drag himself out the pool, panic-stricken, breathing heavily, just about on the point of collapse, just as Jaws, Jaws clamp shut behind him. And so he's interviewed by the Texas oil billionaire immediately. He says, son, what is it you want? Do you want the hand of my beautiful daughter, Betty Lou, in marriage? Do you want 25% of shares in the company? Do you want the $10 million cash? He says, no. 
I want the name of the guy that pushed me in the pool. (laughs) And so, we get serious about following Jesus. And we discover it's life in the shark tank. And we go, I want the name of the guy that pushed me in the shark tank. His name's Jesus. Go. I'm sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. So this is a spiritual enterprise played out in a spiritual war zone. So we must pray. And I would be thrilled if the one takeaway you committed from all the words you hear from me and all the things that agitate your mind and stir your heart, that you committed to prayer evangelism. You go away and you say, you know what? There's five pagans in my life and I love them. And they're pretty cool people, but they don't know Jesus. And just commit to pray for them. Or you don't know any pagans, so you just need to pray for yourself for a while. And change your social circle. Brian Mills was commissioned to mobilize people for prayer before Billy Graham came to England in 1984 for one of his later life visits to England. Eddie Gibbs buzzed around England preparing English churches by asking them this question and training pastors for a day. So it was a question with lots of play out. Is my church ready to receive new people? Brian Mills was commissioned with prayer mobilization and he came up with the simple idea of prayer triplets. That three believers would put three people on a prayer list and pray. That their hearts would be softened, that they would have an interest in Jesus awakened and that they would be positive and respond to an invitation to come and hear Billy Graham preach. Pretty simple. So you're in a prayer triplet. You've got your three list of pagan friends that you love and you want them to come and hear Billy Graham. So you're praying for Larry, Curly and Mo. And then there's two other believers in your prayer triplet and you get together maybe once a week, maybe after church. Maybe you meet for crumpets and tea in jolly old England. Or maybe you have a coffee and you pray together. And what they found was prayer triplets were having to be reconstituted because long before Billy Graham landed on England's green and pleasant shores, people were coming to faith in Christ because believers were engaged in prayer evangelism. Prayer is the most important thing. We're reminded earlier when this tension of the sovereignty of God and human responsibility that you can't move someone one millimeter towards Jesus is completely impossible it requires the work of the spirit of God Zechariah 4 verse 6 says not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts so we need to pray just like the song good old MC Hammer with his large pants his balloon trousers reminds us You've got to pray just to make it today. But prayer needs to be the very heart of the spiritual enterprise of evangelism. Charles Spurgeon was a megachurch pastor before some yahoo concocted the term megachurch. He was a boy preacher, 19, and like 6,000 people were he communicated the gospel to week after week after week. And people are still nourished and nurtured by his sermons and his writings. And someone, a visitor came and said, Spurgeon, what's the secret of your ministry? Is it your oratory? Is it your preaching skill? He said, follow me. 
And they followed him into the labyrinth of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And he went into a little room underneath the pulpit. He says, the pulpit's up here. And while I'm preaching up there, there's a bunch of people praying in here. That's the secret to any fruitfulness in this ministry. Years ago, when I was in Scotland, which is a long time ago, in the 90s, I got a phone call from my mother. And right away, I knew I was either in trouble or she was going to guilt and manipulate me into doing something because she called me William. You know, I said, William. I'm like, okay. He said, what is it, Mum? said, your Uncle George is dying. And he needs to get right with God. So why don't you drive down to his house and lead him to Jesus? She never read J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. She just thought, ask my son and it'll happen. I was unhappy about this for a couple of reasons. One was, I lived 36 miles away from Uncle George. My mother lived three miles away. So my inside voice said, Mother, you're born again. Get your born again butt in your born again car and drive to Uncle George and lead him to Jesus yourself, you slacker. But uh, you can't talk to your mother like that. You You can only think like that. But then I had an Uncle George flashback. Uncle George used to scare the crapola out of me when I was a little guy. He was a wild man, a profane man, a brawler and a drunkard, a crazed, violent Irishman. And he would come into my grandparents' house and I would be sitting there, little five, six-year-old Billy, terrified by Uncle George. And there would be like a puddle underneath where I was sitting. And they'd say, what's wrong, little Billy? You just peed all over the couch. I'd say, Uncle George was staring at me the whole time he was here. And they said, no, he wasn't staring at you. He's got a glass eye. That was even scarier. Here, Billy, want to play with my glass eye? I wasn't staring at you. It was my glass eye looking at you, Billy. So I had flashbacks. But when I got there, he was a shell of his former self. His body was ravaged by cancer. And he's sitting in his armchair in his Rupert the Bear pajamas. And I'm going, you know what? I could kick your butt right now, Uncle George. Oh yeah, bring it on. But that wasn't the agenda for that particular visit. And he's there with my Aunt Katie. They'd been married for 52 years and then got divorced. Which was bizarre. Because they were still inseparable. Like so much for irreconcilable differences. And she's there attending to him, sitting there. And I said, hey, Uncle George, I understand you want to have peace with God. That's right, Billy. That's why I asked you here. I want to get right with the man upstairs. I thought, wow, you've developed a very robust theology after all these years. Referring to the creator and king of the universe as the man upstairs. I said, so why don't we have a chat? I opened my Bible and went through the Bible and shared different episodes in the life and ministry of Jesus. And maybe after about half an hour, I parked on the account of Jesus dying on the cross and there's two thieves either side of Jesus. And one of them's just throwing verbal abuse at Jesus. Saying, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, yank us down off the cross, save us and save yourself. And the other one says, 
This man's done nothing wrong. Jesus, when you come in your Father's kingdom, remember me. And Jesus says, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So George is tracking with me. I said, George, Uncle George to you, Billy. I said, Uncle George, that thief could do nothing. He was a broken shell of a man. All he could do is put his life in Jesus' nail-scarred hands. Will you do that? And George said, Yeah. That's why I asked you here, Billy. I'm ready to do it. How do I do that? How do I put my life in Jesus' nail-scarred hands, Billy? Tell me or I'll thump you. I said, well, why don't you pray a prayer and just give your life to Jesus? Just vocalize what's going on in your heart. And he looked at me like, and I said, okay, George, what if I pray a prayer, say I'll say something to God, then you follow me. Billy, that's a great idea, son. You say it, I'll pray it. You pray it, I'll say it. That'll work. Okay. So I prayed, led George in a prayer. George wanted Katie in on the act, his ex-wife, who he'd been married to for 52 years. Katie, girl, you pray that prayer. You're a sinner, and you need saved. And so she parroted the prayer. Nothing happened in Katie's life, because the prayer isn't a magic transaction. It's not just the words of the mouth, it's the movement of the heart, as Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us. But George was radically and gloriously saved. He was a different man. He radiated joy. He lived for another seven months. I actually conducted his funeral. He was a wild Irishman with a nasty temper. He never raised his voice once in the remaining seven months. He developed an appetite for the scriptures. And a love for praising God. My dad would come and sing to him and read the scriptures. And George got his sons, my cousins, in the house and said, Boys, I've made peace with the man upstairs. There'll be no more drinking in this house. Understand? And they're like, we'll see how long this lasts, Dad. But it lasted. When he was dying, he was hospitalized. And there's two of his wild sons, Roy and Gordon, the redneck brothers. And they go in and see George. And George says, cheerio, boys. Cheerio, bye-bye. I'm like, Dad, where do you think you're going? I'm going home. Dad, you can't go home. You've got to stay in the hospital. Nurses and doctors have to look after you. He goes, no, I'm going home to be with Jesus. And he died. So I'm conducting the funeral. And there's Gordon crazy Gordon blubbering like a baby at the gravesite. Now, I remember Gordon because when Gordon was 16, he got married for the first time. And I drove my grandparents to the wedding. I almost said funeral. Freudian slip. Uh, I drove them to the wedding. Because in Scotland, you can get married at 16 without parental consent. And so I'm driving my grandparents to the wedding And all along the way I'm saying, is Gordon stupid? What's wrong with Gordon? And like, you be quiet. Not a word out of you. Sit at the back of the church and zip it. Okay, I love you, Gran and Granddad. I'll do it because I love you, but I think Gordon is insane. 
And he was married and divorced and married and divorced and married. And maybe divorced again by the time he was 21 or 23. He became a raging alcoholic. Drinking all the time. So much so that at one point the government owed him like a thousand pounds. And he showed George, his dad, the paperwork and said, Dad, Social Security is going to give me a check for a thousand pounds. See? Could you front it for me? And George says, Sure, son. He bought trousers, 35 pounds, blew the rest on booze. He bought the trousers to demonstrate that he didn't have a drink problem. One of his ex-wife's mothers actually removed the small children they'd had from the house. And he's left making toast on a gas fire. He'd been in and out of a mental institution a couple of times by the time he hit his 20s. And now he was on his fourth marriage. But six weeks after his dad's corpse was lowered into the ground, Gordon is radically saved. His wife is radically saved. Now, I tell you that story why. I'm not the hero of that story. Remember, honestly, I was reluctant to go. I was like, there's an interruption to another evening of Nintendo or whatever pressing issue was on my agenda. And I went. The real hero was my grandfather. My grandfather was in the living room when George passed from darkness to light and crossed the line of faith. And my grandfather beckoned me over and said, I've been praying for him for 50 years. Plug into prayer. It's prayer that makes the difference. Secondly, build strong bridges. You notice, even though this is a short-term enterprise, Jesus says, In Luke 10, verse 5, when you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you. For the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. So this is a short-term excursion in missional activity. But at the very heart of it, Jesus embeds... Two values. One is hospitality, experiencing hospitality, and the other is building bridges with people. Don't move around from house to house. And whatever they put on the table, eat it and drink it. You know, there's a grace in extending hospitality, there's a grace in receiving hospitality. But what this means is, if you're going to advance the cause of the gospel, if you're going to participate fruitfully, In Jesus' mission in the world, if you're going to follow through on his call all aboard, it means you need to get up close and personal with pre-Christian people and commit to building bridges. And sometimes that takes time. Where I live in British Columbia, they're building a super bridge over the Fraser River that will have five lanes in either direction. And I think it's going to take them four or five years. Sometimes... It takes time to earn the right to be heard. But I'm not advocating the utilitarian cultivation of relationships so that you can Jesusify and proselytize people. I'm saying we need to be hospitable people. We need to get out the Christian bubble. And we need to get up close and personal with pre-Christian people who are far from God for their sake and for our sake. It's a breath of fresh air to me to get out of the religious malarkey 
and hang out with people who have zero tolerance for BS. I mean, that's really good for my Scottish soul. But it's surprising, as I've rubbed shoulders with people, the amazing things that God does. But getting up close and personal with pre-Christian people means giving up home field advantage. Now, we know home field advantage is supposed to be a big deal. During the Stanley Cup playoffs, I was watching the Blackhawks pulverize the Canucks and was chatting to a friend about it. And I said, well, maybe they'll play better when they go to GM place in Vancouver. He says, what are you talking about? That game was in Vancouver. I thought, no way. I had to actually check online because I didn't believe him. But in sports, normally, home field advantage makes a difference. That's why that pantomime called the All-Star Game in July, now it counts for something. The playoffs, this time it's for real. Why? Because if the AL wins, the AL champs get home field advantage. The Seattle Seahawks have a flag fluttering at Quest Field with the number 12 on it for the 12th man. And that cauldron of noise makes it very hard for a visiting quarterback to call audibles. Home field advantage counts in those sports, but also in the beautiful game, the real sport. that was a twinkle in the eye of God before the foundation of the world. Football. So, a few years ago, I was trying to find a Scotland-Lithuania game on TV, online, and I stumbled onto it online. So I'm sitting at the family desktop computer in the little nook in our little eating area between our family room and the kitchen. And I'm just ear-strained, volume cranked up. Darren Fletcher, who plays for Manchester United, as you know, if you are part of the elect, uh, he comes on as a sub and scores a goal. And I jump out the chair and I'm shouting and screaming and my daughter comes racing downstairs. Dad, did you hurt yourself? Are you all right? I said, no, we're in the playoffs. It's just fine. And so what this meant, though, was that we had two games. The aggregate score would count against the Netherlands because we went into a draw. I thought the Dutch, we can handle the Dutch. And so I took my Franklin Covey daytimer because my life management is governed by a bald Mormon. And I put those two dates, the first leg in Glasgow on a Saturday, in my daytimer and circled it with yellow neon highlighter. Then I took the Wednesday date and circled it with yellow neon highlighter. And I thought, you know, as a pastor, if somebody dies, too bad. The elders can deal with it. If somebody's hospitalized, you know, maybe the deacons will actually deke for a change. And so, first things first. So, I'm there, and I'm at the Georgian Dragon Pub in the People's Republic of Fremont in Seattle for the first game. And there I watch. There he is again, the boy wonder, Darren Fletcher. Cheeky little back heel to James McFadden. And Faddy arcs the ball past that flailing Dutch clown, Edwin van der Sar. And the ball swishes into the back of the net. I become airborne. And I'm shouting and cheering. I'm looking for Dutch people to sneer at in the pub. And I'm excited. We beat the Dutch one nothing. I was a little nervous, however, because we played with one man in front of the back four. And this one man was Christian Daly, who played out of his skin and nullified the Dutch forwards. 
He picked up a yellow card and was suspended from the following game. And I thought, that's a problem. But optimism was high nonetheless. I got down to the Georgian Dragon pub before it opened. And excuse me, I spat on you there. Forgive me, sister. I'll step back. Bring an umbrella next time and you'll be okay. And because I know the owners, John and John, John B. opens the door and says, Hey, Bill, come on in. Do you like a coffee? I said, Sure. So we're talking, and he says, Bill, I think the Scots are going to do it, mate. They played so great at Hampton. I'm like, yes, we're going to stuff the Dutch. The game was a nightmare. Final score, the Netherlands 6, Scotland 0. I was absolutely horrified. I was devastated. I got free beer as a consequence. The owner said, here, here, mate, have a commiseratory pint. I said, thank you. <laughs> what happened? Scotland didn't show up. But the other issue was Amsterdam Arena became a cauldron of noise and hostility. And in that intensity, Scotland didn't perform. We know home field advantage is a big deal in sports. Sports means squat in the light of eternity. I love sports. used to play sports when I was younger. Sports are a great distraction, but that's all sport is, really, in terms of the spectating of a sport. In the ministry of the church, way too often, we cling to home field advantage. And we subscribe to Kevin Costner theology. If you build it, they will come. And we assume if we create a program, they will come. And we say, why did you build that baseball diamond in the middle of a cornfield? Because I heard a voice say, if you build it, they will come. Why did you construct that program and sink dollars and staffing and resources into it? Because if we build it, pagans will come. No, they won't. Somehow we think that pagans will get sucked into the electromagnetic field of our church subculture. And we're saying, come to us, come to us, come to us. And Jesus says, Bill Bridges. Jesus is the God who gave up home field advantage. That's what the incarnation is. God giving up home field advantage. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And he says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. So that means we need to eat meals with pagans, drink coffee with pagans, have microbrews with pagans, Befriend pagans, engage in hobbies with pagans, and hang out with pre-Christian people and be their friends and love them for the long haul and not drop them if they say thanks for the Jesus stuff, we're not interested anymore. But we commit to building bridges. And it's amazing what God will do. If we open up our hearts, our homes, our dinner tables, our lives, to those who don't yet know Christ. And intentionalize our calendar and our priority into the redemptive enterprise of bridge building. My son played soccer when we were in the States, played in the team, then played high school soccer. And I got to know the coaches. I would come and help out with some of the practices. And uh, one of the coaches was Scott. And uh, Pastor Dave and I have gone through the Arrow program and I had to do an assignment that uh, now I give to people. 
And that is to interview a normal person about their beliefs. So I said, Scott, I'm doing this leadership development thing. And I'm supposed to interview a normal person. I think you're normal, Scott. Would you agree? He's like, kind of. The wife might know, but I think I'm normal. And I said, and they're also, they can't be a practicing Christian. Fair to say you're not a practicing Christian? Yep. Fair comment. He said, so what's this going to look like? I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. I said, cool. He said, on one condition. I said, what's that? I get to ask you a bunch of questions. Nancy and I have been praying and asking God to send us someone so that we can ask them our questions. And I thought, you know what? I don't have time for that. I'm sorry. I thought, yes. So we met in Rory's pub. Got a picture of Alaskan Amber and sat there. And Scott had these questions. And I had my questions that went out the window. And there's this holy moment when this chunky soccer coach begins to tear up and ask me, do you think I can ever see God through the eyes of a child again? Can I see God through the eyes of a child? I want to see God through the eyes of a child. And there's longing and yearning in his voice. And I discover he had a childhood faith that vaporized. But there's still a mourning. He's haunted by God. Those conversations only happen if we build trust, spend time, and get connected to those who are outside of Christ. We've got a couple of friends who asked us to take them to see The Passion of the Christ. My wife hates the movie The Passion of the Christ. So she went because Tom and Susan wanted to go. And my wife just closed her eyes most of the time. But they asked us why. Because we became their friends. Susan's an atheist. Tom's an ex-Catholic who ditched the church in his adolescent years. And we love them deeply. And we want to tour Europe together. Whether or not they sign up for Jesus or not. But we've had a great time. And invariably they'll ask all kinds of questions. Tom was my buddy for Boys Day Out. What's Boys Day Out look like? Boys Day Out means you go to a restaurant and you eat lunch. You go to a movie. You watch a movie. You go somewhere else and eat something. And talk about the movie. And decide if you'll go somewhere else. And the wives wonder where are they? And so Tom and I one time went to see Cold Mountain with Nicole Kidman, lovely in her luminescence. And so Tom says to me as we're sitting down in this bar in Ballard, Bill, if you had to preach on that movie, what would you say to your congregation? I'm like, Tom, are you kidding me? Thanks for the soft pitch across the heart of the plate buddy and he's always asking questions one time we went out together in the evening and Tom says I've got something I want to ask you do you believe Jesus is really the son of God and why do you believe that so it's like I'm not there to like drive the spiritual agenda Tom's still searching and I'm happy to come along for the ride these conversations only happen if we climb out the subculture and make room, our lives are so stinking busy. Carl Jung said, busyness is not of the devil, it is the devil. And sometimes we get so busy with good things, the best things go out the door, or we just don't make room. And we're running, running, running. 
So if you're going to practice the power of hospitality, that takes time and space. So build strong bridges. Connect with those outside of church, outside of Christ, and walk with them. Thirdly and finally, show and tell. Tell the gospel. The gospel has its own inbuilt power. Romans 1 verse 16. I remember one evening watching late night television in Scotland. Here we've got Craig Ferguson. Back in the UK we had this guy called Russell Harty who was like a grumpy, aging, big girl's blouse of a man. And he was always like, whining and if you didn't like them, why did you invite them on your show? And so one night he had two guests, David Essex and Billy Graham. And so... He's got a segue between David Essex. Anybody know who David Essex is? That's okay. You're not impoverished. Don't sweat it. David Essex is like an aging rocker who's probably like 60-something now, who always seems to be in a perpetual state of stoundness. And he was a big pop star in the UK, maybe in the 70s. But he played Jesus in Godspell. So Russell Hardy said to him, uh, David Essex, mm, you played Jesus in God's spell. Mm. Who do you think Jesus was? He was just the good man, man. He was like just the good man. I thought, wow, you did a lot of research for your role in God's spell, didn't you? So Billy Graham's sitting there like a hawk, ready to pounce in Russell Harrison. Mm, Billy Graham. Who do you think Jesus is? I thought, what a stupid question to ask Billy Graham. He said, Russell, he's the Lord of all lords, and he is the king of all kings. Oh. He said, well, Billy Graham, I think, I'd think about the faith if I had cancer like Steve McQueen did. So that dates the story, obviously. But Billy Graham corrected Russell Harty and said, that's where you're wrong, Russell. Steve gave his life to Christ before he knew that he had cancer. This is live TV, and I'm watching this late-night talk show host visibly shaken by Billy Graham's response. So his comeback to Billy after Billy says, that's where you're wrong, Russell. Steve gave his heart to Christ before he knew that he had cancer. And he says, I'm Billy Graham. I'd be embarrassed to do what you do. You're just a showman and a show-off and a showman. Mm. And Billy says, Russell, why should I be embarrassed about Jesus? He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. And then Billy says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. Silence. Snow forming on Russell Hardy's brow. And then Billy breaks the silence and says, Besides Russell, I have something you don't have. And Russell's dumb enough to ask him what that is. And Billy says, I have the Holy Spirit of God living inside me. And I'm watching the TV and I'm going, Go Billy, go Billy, go Billy, go Billy. The gospel is the power of God. It has its own inbuilt power, irrespective of who the communicator is. A bumbling Bible college student, a fossilized aging pastor, 
an arrogant young evangelist, a charlatan trying to fleece the flock, if the gospel is proclaimed, God will honor and endorse and authenticate the preaching of the gospel. But Jesus doesn't simply commission 72 mouths. He commissions the 72 to show and tell. Because in the scriptures, declaration and demonstration are Siamese twins. We're called to demonstrate the gospel. We're called to declare the gospel. It's both and. I get sick and tired. Like, see if I had five bucks, if I've heard some emergent dude with too much hair product say, preach the gospel all the time. If necessary, use words. That's what St. Francis said. Whoa, peace out, dude. I'm like, shut up and sit down. I thank God for Mark Galley, an editor at Christianity Today, who's written a book that says, St. Francis never said that. I thought, great. Why didn't you write that book like 10 years ago and save me all this grief? It's necessary to use words. It's necessary to use words. It's necessary to use words. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the proclamation of the gospel, the foolishness of preaching, the gossiping of the gospel is necessary for the enterprise of evangelism and for people to come to faith in Christ. But at the same time, in the New Testament, they demonstrate the power of the gospel and they demonstrate the peace of the kingdom. They demonstrate the power of Jesus. They heal the sick. They say, Lord, even the demons submitted to us in your name. There's a demonstration of Jesus' power. There's also a demonstration of Jesus' presence. They bring the peace of Christ into those homes. And it's the same for us. My wife and I went to Bible school together. I did a four-year sentence at Theological Cemetery. She got out after three years. And just to add to her, well, we were assigned a church in this area of urban decay in Manchester. And one weekend we showed up for their 50th or 60th anniversary celebration. And it's all old-timers who were wonderful people who loved Jesus, but it's a shrinking, dying, graying church. And there's the evangelist who planted the church there, who looks like Moses with a shock of white hair. He was in his 80s at this thing. And over the course of the weekend, I discover how the church was planted. Maynard James was the preacher that weekend, and Maynard was part of a group called the Trekkers. There was Maynard James, Jack Ford, Clifford Filer, and a guy you might have heard of called Leonard Ravenhill, who was the baby of the group. And they would go around England, pitch a tent, preach the gospel, and leave a nucleus of converts as a congregation. They'd seen that Jeffrey's brothers, who were part of the Elam Foursquare Pentecostal movement in action, and Maynard James said, this is what God is doing in our generation. What were what the Jeffreys brothers doing? Preaching the gospel and healing the sick. And so Maynard thought, this is what God's doing. That's what we're going to do. We're going to preach the gospel and heal the sick. And he got into trouble for that. Because his denomination said, what do you think you're doing calling sick people forward and praying for them to be healed? James 5 clearly says the sick must take the initiative and call the elders of a local church to anoint them with oil and pray that God will heal them. Maynard says, well, 
This is apostolic evangelism. And Jesus has given us authority to heal the sick. So we're going to heal the sick. And his denomination said, you know, we're not too happy with something else. What's that? Sometimes people speak in tongues at your meetings, Maynard, and that's just an unhappy thing. Maynard says, it's not an unhappy thing. There's always an interpretation. So we're just going to do what we're doing because God's told us this is what we should do. So he was part of something called the Calvary Holiness Church. And so they come into Salford, Manchester, and they're breaking the world's record for preaching to empty seats. And that's no fun. And they take turns at preaching each night. So like, hey, I preached to the empty seats last night. You can preach to the empty seats tonight. No, I did it two nights ago. I don't want to preach to no empty seats. And so they're having this uplifting, inspiring team meeting. And a woman pushes her crippled sister into the tent in a bath chair. And says, gentlemen, would you pray that God would heal my sister? And they're like, huh? Okay. We'll pray. They laid hands on the woman who was in the bath chair. And she's catapulted out of the bath chair by the power of God. An invisible force plants her on her feet. She's fully healed and saved on the spot. Her sister, who was a backslider, an ex-Jesus follower, is instantaneously reconnected to God. And the two of them walk arm in arm down the street with an empty bath chair. The whole neighborhood shows up. The gospel is preached. People are one for Christ and a church is planted. Why? Because somehow these guys who are all dead now were part of this dynamic of demonstrating the power of Jesus. They understood there was a message to proclaim but the declaration and demonstration are Siamese twins. Now you may see supernatural manifestation of the power of God. That's God's choice. Jesus commissions us to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to drive out demons. But he also calls us to be men and women of peace. As we look at this passage of scripture. The 72 are to bring the peace of God, the presence of Jesus, wherever they go. And a reminder to us that part of this declaration and demonstration is the bearing that we carry. Do we carry the aroma and fragrance and presence of Jesus? Do we go into the workplace saying, Jesus, fill me up. I want to honor you. I want you to love people through me. Or do we go, oh great, another day on the treadmill? Because the way we live our life can be very persuasive. When my dad gave his life to Jesus, he was an eager witness in his factory. And one old codger said to him, son, I can't hear the words you're speaking because I'm watching the way you're living. Nailed him for inconsistency. That was a tough one. When my wife got radically saved, she just radiated the presence of Jesus. And a bunch of her mother's friends showed up and they said, something different has happened to you. Have you fallen in love? And she said, yeah. And they said, who's the guy? And she says, Jesus. Michael Green, who's a theologian, evangelist, scholar, apologist. How was he one to Christ? A persuasive philosophical argument? No. 
he was at university. And a guy called Richard, who was a very vocal Christian, came into the room, tripped on the carpet, smacked his head off the mantelpiece at the fireplace and said, Oh, now Michael's expecting a stream of profanity, but the supernatural restraint when the guy did a flying header off the mantelpiece. He thought, Wow, there's something about Richard, isn't there? Clive Calver was uh, the national director of British Youth for Christ in the UK. He's now a pastor in Connecticut. And uh, he was a wild, wild tearaway as a young man. He got in tow with an older man called Roger Foster, who was a preacher. And he said, Roger was the most boring preacher I met in my entire life. But I couldn't argue against the integrity and authenticity of his life. So where does that bring us? God calls us to plug into prayer. God calls us to build strong bridges. And Jesus calls us to show and tell. Let's pray, shall we? We're told nothing about the resume, the ability, the capacity, the capabilities of the 72. All we can conclude from Scripture is they were available. Jesus commissioned them and they embraced that commission. They went on mission with Jesus. I think I would be remiss without challenging you. Are you willing? Are you available to place your life at Jesus' disposal? To recognize that you're not working for that electronics firm, that factory, that office, simply to pull a paycheck. You're there as God's man, God's woman, God's agent, God's subversive. That's why you're there. You're actually a full-time missionary. And that company just writes the checks to support the mission. But the issue is, are we open and available? Maybe every day, but I would contend certainly every week. Hurting, lost, scared, frightened, broken, angry, messed up, dysfunctional people bump into us and we're given divinely orchestrated opportunities to express the love and power and fragrance and wisdom and words of Jesus. But are we open? Are our eyes open to what God places in front of us? Are we available? So I'd like to pray and then I'd like to uh, invite you uh, to respond. So I'll pray and, and let's just keep this attitude of prayer for a couple of moments. Father, we recognize that we've got a job to do. That you've saved us, you've redeemed us, you've rescued us, you've salvaged us for a purpose. And Lord, we want to be available to you. We want to give ourselves wholly to you. We say, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. And we pray, Lord, that You would use our hands, our feet, our mouths, our abilities, our talents, our strengths and our limitations. And we surrender to You, Jesus, fully, just the way we are, broken and scarred, hopeful, happy, struggling, we come to you just the way we are. And we say, Jesus, 
king it over our lives and more than that use us as agents of your kingdom use us to make a difference where you have placed us use us as channels of your grace your hope and your healing we want to be available to you so let's just linger for a moment in God's presence and this evening if you want to give yourself holy and I mean holy completely to Jesus as a declaration of your availability and in so doing you're saying okay God guess what I give you permission to hit the pause button on my career aspirations I give you permission to govern my finances I give you permission to relocate me if that is your plan and your purpose and your will all those details I leave in your hands Lord but here I am for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, here I am. I want you to own my life and use my life. I surrender my life to you. I give myself completely to you, Jesus, because you've given yourself completely for me. And I want you to use me. Use me in any way you see fit to spread your message, your hope, your grace, your mercy your goodness, your justice. And this evening, if you're willing to do that, I'd invite you just to stand to your feet as an act of surrender. And I'd like to pray for you tonight that God would meet you in a profound, impactful way and that God by His Spirit would use you. And that when you head back on Monday, things will be different because unreservedly, unequivocally you're there to fulfill a redemptive purpose so tonight as an act of response and surrender you say here I am Jesus fully available I'd invite you to stand and I'd like to pray for you God bless you pray for these friends who are standing and if you want to join them I'll give you just a few moments more I'm not going to stretch this out but we just want to do business with God so you stand and I'd love to pray for you God bless you let's pray Father I thank you for these brothers these sisters these dear ones these friends these men and women who are standing as an act of surrender but more than that as a declaration of intent that they want their lives to count for you Jesus we thank you that your words are you did not choose me but I chose you and I chose you I appointed you to bear fruit that will last so I pray for those who are standing that your spirit would come upon them in power and that they would bear much fruit for you that you would use them as your mouthpiece you would anoint them with creativity and boldness and authority and winsomeness to announce the message with clarity and that your spirit would wash over them 
and that you would pour the love of God into their hearts in such a unique and powerful way that they would be conduits of your love and that you would love lost and broken, hurting, directionless people through them. So I pray that they would have a God moment here, Lord, where you would draw near to them. Father, I thank you for their openness and vulnerability to draw near to you. And I pray that you will fulfill your promise where you declare, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. So Father, we pray that you would take them. You would take their talents, their silver, their gold, their abilities and use them to advance your kingdom. Pray that you would take hold of their weaknesses and limitations and invade those places of weakness and limitation with your grace and that you would draw them into a place of dependency and anoint them for fruitful service that they would be living sacrifices who burn brightly for you and bring much glory and honor to you and we say this in Jesus mighty name Amen Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.